Hey y'all, this is Best Behavior Creative Club. It's a podcast for people that make things and make things happen. And I'm your host, Chris McAdoo. Uh, This week, I'm stoked to share our conversation recorded recently live in Nashville, Tennessee with Mary Kellogg Jocelyn. Um, She's the co-founder of the Titanic Attractions in Pigeon Forge um, here in Tennessee and in Branson, Missouri. She's a woman with a powerful pedigree from the halls uh, and the executive boardrooms of CBS, all the way to being behind the scenes and writing the first check for Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Uh, Just wonderful stories, and I'll tell you what, I'm gonna let her take it from here. All right, and we return with Best Behavior Creative Club, an original design sensory podcast production. I am your host, Chris McAdoo. I'm Brad Carpenter. There he goes, doing the things that the people do when the people are asked to do the things. (laughs) So we are live uh, all day, uh, but we're live today from the Governor's Conference on Hospitality and Tourism in Nashville, Tennessee. And this episode, we are so excited, I'm super excited, to be talking with Mary Kellogg, one of the owners of the Titanic attraction in Pigeon Forge. You're right. There we go. Mary, um, why don't you tell the good folks at home, just uh, introduce yourself and tell them a little bit about the Titanic. Oh, uh, well, I had the opportunity of getting involved in the Titanic in 1980, let's take you back, in 1985, Titanic was found. And in 1987, a second expedition was put together. That expedition cost $6 million. They spent 44 days at sea. They did 32 dives to the Titanic and brought up the first artifacts. And the first tele- the purpose of that expedition was to do the first television show. And that was led by my husband, John Jocelyn. Ah, okay. So John and I met at CBS and we were both uh, television producers. And John left CBS and went on and formed his own production company as a television producer. I stayed with CBS and I eventually became head of all marketing for CBS and then eventually became the first woman head of all programming for CBS. And then one day I'd been at CBS for 10 years and I got a call from Disney. And at the time, uh, Disney was, you know, in desperate help of new management because Walt had died and the, and the studio had kind of gone to sleep. And so the call was, hey, we're forming a whole new division with Disney and we'd like you to come join us. And that was with Michael Eisner, Jeffrey Katzenberg, Rich Frank, and Frank Wells. So 30 of us were brought in to revitalize this company. So every Monday morning, we would have, the 30 of us would get together and we would decide how we were going to rebuild this company. And now having been head of CBS with programming and all the shows that I was doing, I had a lot of people that were reporting to me. And when I go to Disney, I'm in a single office all by myself, <laughs> no ratings, no nothing. And I'm thinking, did I make the right oh decision? Gosh. And so I was chose to look at all the library and go through it and develop the program that they would take out to make money. It took a year to go through the entire library. I reformatted all the shows, did all the teasers and the trailers, which I did when I first went to CBS, so I felt like I was starting all over again, (laughs) the hands-on. And as it turns out, I turned it over to sales, and it went to sales, and we sold $330 million, and I became the golden child. Oh my gosh. So at that point, we wanted to do television shows. 
So when I was at CBS, we tried to get a man that some of your listeners might know, Regis Philman. And Regis was at ABC, and we were trying desperately to get him over to CBS, and we couldn't get him. So when we went to Disney, we said, hey, let's get Regis and do a national show. We then put him with a partner, Kathy Lee, and we developed the Kathy Lee and Regis show. At the time, we were unsuccessful that first year. It was very difficult to do this show. And finally, we hit it one day, and we were traveling all over the country on the East Coast, West Coast, Chicago, and finally, um, we were trying to look at where else we could go. And this is how one letter changed my life. I had received letters from all over the country requesting that this show be moved, and we broadcast from there. But when you're moving a show like this, it costs about a million dollars, so you have to plan a year out. Mm -hmm. So I went to the studio and I put my plan together for the following year and I said, I think I want to go to a letter I received from the Ozark Marketing Council in Branson, Missouri. <laughs> and I said, I think we should take the show to Branson, Missouri. Well, the studio goes, why would you take this show to Branson, Missouri? I said, it's not about Branson, Missouri. It's about the 12 television stations around the market and all the radio stations around there and all the newspapers will never be able to talk to somebody like Regis and Kathy Lee live. I took the show there. Mm -hmm. We did four shows. 25,000 people show up. And we were on the front page of 12 newspapers. All the television stations were there and all the radio stations were there. Wow. So we were able to put ourselves on the map in the Midwest. Now I also had another challenge which was how could I grow this show and become the show? So I said to my PR person, you know what? We need to get on People Magazine. It was so hot at the time. We need to get a front cover for the fall season of our new season. And she said, she came into my office one day and she said, I got the front cover. I said, did you get the front cover or did you get that little picture that goes in the right <laughs> corner? And she said, I got the picture. I said, no way. It's front cover, no little thing. And she said, well, I really tried. I can't. I said, who are we up against? And she says to me, there's this guy named Garth Brooks. <laughs> well, who is Garth Brooks? Oh I said, gosh. I could sell more magazines than he can. You have to go back to him and tell him, I will put that front cover on the on the broadcast for three days straight, and we will sell more magazines than Garth Brooks. You go back and you sell that. And so I said, what was the name of that guy? Garth Brooks. I go, okay, well, I can sell more magazines than he can. So we got the front cover. Garth got it the second week. So cut to uh, John, in the meantime, is doing his shows. He's, he's going to Titanic, and then after he does that, they want to know what else he's going to do, and he does Lost City of Atlantis, Hitler's Bunker, the Vatican, and I always say the reason our marriage has lasted so long is I lived in New York and he lived in L.A. <laughs> so finally, I met Disney, and um, another show that I brought to television was Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? So, uh, working with other executives, of course, not just me, and so it comes time for that millionaire question. And the first one I will never forget. So it comes to the point, and Regis is the host at the time. Mm -hmm. And so the millionaire question comes up. It's the last one, and the guy says, I think I'd like, uh, I, I want the question. Regis gives him the question. He says, we'll go to commercial and we'll come back. So we get all the cameras ready, the director, the AD, myself. Everything's ready because 
you only have it live. You only got one shot right, if you make right. it. If you miss the camera shot, you've just lost everything. So the room is quiet, set comes up, Regis says, this is the question, and he says, I'm gonna call a friend. Well, it takes the wind out of us, and we go, he's call oh my God, he's calling a friend. Oh, I know Who is saying. his friend? This. I'm gonna call this. my father. So we go, oh, okay, call your father. Back room calls the father, and he gets on the phone, and he says, Dad, I just thought I'd call and tell you, I just won a million bucks. And he had the answer. Yeah. Oh, I remember that. So at that oh, point, yes! and so at that point, I'm in the control booth. It's pandemonium at that point. All the confetti is flying, and all of a sudden the accountants come running in, and they say, "Mary, you got to sign this check because in those days it was a million dollars you got on a check." So I signed it, and everything. Everything's happening so fast, and yeah, the accountants yeah. and everything. And I get home, and I say to John, "You're not going to believe it, but somebody won a million dollars tonight." And I, I said, I didn't know my signature was worth a million bucks. I just signed a check for a million bucks. And cut That's to, amazing. John goes, to this day, he always says to me, I can't believe you didn't get a Xerox copy of the first millionaire check. Seriously. Yeah. That's oh funny. So Can now just... cut to, you know, Disney. It was such an exciting time. But they always had a, a statement that all of us said that if you didn't come in on Saturdays, don't bother coming in on Sundays. That's how hard we worked. Oh, my gosh. And we just helped. It was the most exciting time, I can tell you. And I'll share one more story yes, about please. Disney. Please. Share, uh, can, we just, can we just say, talk about how I told the person who made Regis and Kathy Lee, and who wants to be a millionaire, how to use a microphone? I was like, you put the microphone to your mouth like this. And she's like, yeah. Yeah, I know how to use a microphone. But cool. Cool. Okay. Awesome. I didn't mean to be that way. No, no. I think it's oh, hilarious. No. I think it's absolutely hilarious. So cut to, we're forming a new division. And the new division is called Home Video. And we're trying to decide whether we're going to bring out any of the um, animation out of the vault and put mm -hmm. it on home video. So there's lots of discussion. Some say no in the management team, and some say yes, we should do it. So Michael says, we're going to do synergy on this home video. And we all kind of look at each other like, synergy? What does that have to do with me, you know? So he says, I want each one of you to come back following Monday morning, and I want you to present to you what you're going to do to help me sell these videos. So, you know, we all leave, and I'm television, like, what am I worrying about home video? And I go to my team half-heartedly, and we come back on the following Monday morning and make our presentation, and he says, you, none of you get synergy, because at some point, your division's going to want all the other divisions to help you. I am telling you, you need to go back. We are all going to focus on this home video, and we together will make this successful. So we all leave, and I go back with my tail between my legs, and I say to the crew, you know what? We did a lousy job. Now we have to figure out how to make this all work. <clears throat> so we um, put, a, put a campaign together. I can't remember what it was and how we were going to promote this home video. And it was Snow White, first one out. So we come back. All of us are now energized that we got to deliver on this thing. Yeah. We now understand what synergy is in concept. So we come back, and that Monday morning, um, Michael says to the president of the home division, which was Bill Mechanic, who became president of 20th Century Fox, he says, Bill, how many do you think we can sell after you've listened to everybody? And Bill says, well, I, I think we could ma maybe sell $10 million. And he looks at the marketing 
person who was uh, Carol Black, who eventually became president of Lifetime, and he says to her, how many do you think you could sell as head of marketing? And she pauses and she says, I think we can sell 12 million. Michael says, we're gonna take her number and that's how many we're gonna sell. Because of Synergy, we sold 14 million. Oh my gosh. That was the first time. So the point to the story is, it doesn't matter where you are in life and what you're doing, when an opportunity comes together for a department, help that department because somewhere along the line you're gonna need help with an idea that you have. But it takes everybody to make it happen. So I often say in tourism, you know, our frontline people, you can always give them a task. But it's really important to tell them the big story. Why are we doing what we're doing? And then fulfill the task. So that John and I, 20 years later, John says to, <laughs> to me, I'm going to build a, per he had take the artifacts. The first place they were ever shown was in Memphis, Tennessee. Huh. And in six months, 600,000 people came to see these artifacts. And then he traveled them all over the country uh, and Europe. And then he said, you know what, that model's gonna wear out. I think I'm gonna build a permanent museum. So at that time, it had been 20 years, Michael Eisner was gone, Jeffrey was gone, Frank had died from climbing Mount Everest. And, and so I said to John, you know what, sometimes you gotta know when it's time to go. And so I said to him, you know, I think I'd like to join your company. And he, I said, where are you gonna build the Titanic? And he said, well, the first one we're gonna build in Branson, Missouri. And I go, you're kidding, <laughs> Branson, Missouri? And his feeling was that the Midwest needed a good museum. <clears throat> and let's put it, and I said, uh, I'm gonna leave Disney and I'm gonna join your company on one condition, and he always says, of course Mary has a condition. <laughs> and I said, everybody's gonna report to me and I'll report to you because there can only be one boss. And so I had to figure out who the marketing was, how we were gonna do this, and in 14 months we opened up our first Titanic Museum, which is in the shape of a ship. Yeah. And so we were lucky, it was very, it's been very successful from day one. And then about 18 months later, John comes to me and he says, you know, we need to build the second one. And I went, oh my God, John, I haven't slept in 14 months. We gotta build the second one. Oh yes, we had to build a second one. I go, well, where do you think we ought to build the second one? And he goes, Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. And I went, well, where is that? <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, we're gonna get a plane and we're gonna go there. We're gonna find a, a place for it. So we came to Pigeon Forge and like everybody says, it's one of the most beautiful destinations you could mm -hmm. be in. And so 24 months later, we opened the second one. Wow. And so that's how we've been. Wow. And so one opened in 2006, the other one opened in 2010. Mm -hmm. So, and every year we change everything. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I have a strategy. We're working on 222 right now. So that's my story. <laughs> what, a, what an amazing story. Blown away. I am just... I'm just kind of hanging back for a minute. I'm absolutely loving this because there's a couple things that are happening here. One, it's the end of the day. We yep. just finished with Marcus, uh, Marcus Watson from the Gatlinburg Skylift Park. And Mary walks up and says, hey, um, I'd love to talk with, I'd love to do the podcast. And, and it's, it's like, yes, we love to say yes. Yeah. He said, yes, this is amazing. It's been a long day. We've been talking to people all day. <laughs> but if we wouldn't have said yes, 
we would have not gotten to meet <laughs> the former head. I'm just going to go through some things because particularly being the first woman at CBS to be head of programming, head of marketing, like to the person that, <laughs> that launched Regis and Kathy Lee, um, to now, of course, with the Titanic. I just feel like all day we've been talking about opportunity. We've been talking about where people put themselves in the places to make those things happen. And I'm in, literally in the middle of it, having a crazy, wonderful conversation. Yeah. So anyway. I always say to John, you know, when we left uh, and we kept going back to L.A. all the time when we were building the ship. And I, I can remember sitting in the car, getting ready to go back to L.A. And I said, John. I don't want to be an owner that just looks at numbers. I have a mm -hmm. feel for it. I understand it. I want to be there when there's frustrations, and I want to be there when we're excited about something. And so we sold our home, and we moved to Branson, Missouri. And then when we wow. built Pigeon Forge, we have another home in uh, Pigeon Forge. So my feeling is I'm traveling back and forth between the two ships. But I have fantastic general managers, fantastic managers. We have a Titanic College, so all of our crew members go through Titanic College. And the reason you do that is because there's nothing worse than going into the museum and people don't know what right. they're talking right. about. So we have a whole educational program there. And we're big in the school markets. We're accredited for uh, history and all the math and science and all of that. So we have a educational department, you know. So. I, I, well, that actually follows up into the question I was kind of wanting to get into is you seem to have a very specific sort of bent or focus on leadership, right? Mm -hmm. And so with the Titanic, the Disney thing makes sense because it's down to the, the finest detail, right? How people act, how people react, the way things are staged. Like I think now it makes total sense with the, you know, with the Disney history. How do you view, how do you view that employee experience and leadership? How do you lead people to want to do that? Well, a leader leads people. And my feeling is as a leader, I'll tell you another story real quick that we'll get into that. When I left Disney, you know, you never shared numbers. So I was trained that way. So when we opened our ships, I said, no numbers are given out. And I, about a year into it, I got to thinking, well, why am I hiding the numbers? If, if I tell the, the crew what the numbers are, because I require an 8.30 meeting every day and a 3.30 meeting, 364 days a year. And the objective for those meetings are somewhat like a television show. You have your meetings for what happened that worked, what happened that didn't, what are your numbers, what's your per cap, any VIPs coming, any special groups, and then what are the stories we have to share. Mm -hmm. And so that happens twice a day. And um, my feeling is if you set up accountability expectation levels mm -hmm. and I always when I teach leadership classes I always say I can tell the room when I ask the following question what comes first your guest or your employee and based on that in my opinion your employee comes first because if you set up expectations um, set up what is what should be happening that day also how we handle our guests and the training goes into that then we'll have a happy employee, which then will give us a happy guest. And there's no problem. If a guest gives us a problem that, and let's say TripAdvisory gives me 
a negative on something, I tell everybody that is, that is positive for us because we can react to it. Mm -hmm. Versus the old days, it took you eight day, eight weeks mm -hmm. to get a letter, and eight <laughs> weeks that same problem's been going on. Right. And I always say, the advice I always give everybody about TripAdvisor when you own your own company is write the letter to the TripAdvisor to the person that is reading it, not to the person that complains. Because the person that complains, I can't change their mind nine times out of ten. Right. But I can justify without being negative, like mm -hmm. you're wrong and I'm right. No, I'm sorry you were disappointed with your experience. However, I'm excited that we have a new artifact on display yeah, or yeah. whatever that is. Um, or I might say I'd like to clarify a fact that is not true. Mm -hmm. uh, but I never get into an argument with them. There's sometimes I'll send a private email. I know one today, it was like a four rating. Anything that's a four rating or below, I get. And I, <laughs> I said to him, send him a private note and they were disappointed they couldn't take pictures inside the ship. And they were disappointed they felt that the price of the photos that they get, which is okay. I said, you send a private note and tell them that we never want anybody disappointed if they'll give us their phone number and what date they were at the ship, we will give them a complimentary photo. So I'm always thinking of customer relations and, mm -hmm. and our managers are all empowered. Somebody has a bad experience, I, I don't want them to leave hating us and thinking it was a bad experience. It just wasn't for them. It's okay, you know. Oftentimes we can tell when somebody's never been to a museum also because we offer the audio tour with the price of the ticket. Hmm. And if they ask us, what, what is this, then we have to be a little more careful with that, that guest because they've never, I can tell they've never experienced a museum before. And so we need to be sensitive to that. So we've trained all of our crew. Cool. Wow. And you guys deal with, um, I mean, a lot of people. How many people come through just the Pigeon Forge uh, location? 450,000 every year. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. I wasn't expecting that. Yeah. Both of you have to come and see it. I got to go. Yes. No, yeah. I, I, I took my kids last year. We, we loved it. it oh, you went? Time. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. thank you. No, my, my kids loved it. Yeah. I, so. It's funny how some people with that are adults that come in there and say, well, kids would never love it. <laughs> well, we built it. And the audio, to, audio tour, there's a youth version for the audio. Yeah. And I have a family full of just nerds. So they just like history and they like... Stuff like that just makes them excited. So. Well, and, you know, sometimes the press will say to me, what do you want people to walk away with? I said, I really want them to get in the car and talk about their family history. Yeah. What are their stories? And sometimes we ask too late in families, right. you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely right. So. Well, it's that, it's kind of like that, that strength of, the, the strength of experience. You took your family there. You probably have people from all over, not just around the United States, but people from all over the world. Oh, definitely. Yeah, we had a couple come in uh, from Denmark just the other day, and they said, the only reason we came to Pigeon Forge is we wanted to see the Titanic. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. What do those stories mean to you? Well, let me share one story that kind of says it all. There's a young girl who's six years old on the Titanic with her father. The mother had passed away. They're on their way to America for a better life. They're on their way to a little town called Galesburg, Illinois. They're from Sylvania, and they're on the boat. And the night of April 14th and 15, when the boat struck the iceberg and she's about to sink, 
the father says, please let, my, please let me go with my little girl because she has nobody. And if she goes by herself, she'll be an orphan. And the officer said, no, only women and children. He be, continues to beg and say, please let me go. They turn their backs and they let him get into the lifeboat. They get to Gillsburg, Illinois. And after a year, they decide that they want to go back home. And they go back to Slovenia. And oftentimes, we take people into the children's gallery and we share that story. We stand there and people will say, don't you get tired of telling the same story? And we go, no, you see, she's standing beside us. And she says to me, don't ever let people forget my story. And that's why we tell these stories every day. Wow. All right, some powerful stuff. That is amazing. So we had, uh, we've had over 300 Titanic descendants come mm. and visit us. Uh-huh. And, uh, t- you know, sometimes they'll help us with a story that's missing a piece. And so, or sometimes we tell them about their families. Right. So, yeah, we've had 300. We had seven last weekend wow. come and visit us. Wow. I heard you're getting the, the, the violin, too. But. Yes, and uh, the highest price ever paid for an artifact is $1.8 million. And that was uh, the bandmaster, Wallace Hartley's violin. Mm-hmm. He strapped it on his body, and it was in a valise. And it's not like the way we are. It's flimsy. Today, in those days, it was heavy yeah. leather. And it was wrapped around his body. And once they retrieved his body, the violin they took out, and that was the violin. Mm. And so with all the province, it took about five years to confirm that that was the violin, saltwater and all of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we have that coming in to Branson February through June and then July through December uh, next year. Awesome. And then in 221, I decided that we should pay tribute to all the Jewish passengers that were aboard because most people don't realize there was a kosher kitchen and a kosher chef aboard wow. that ship. So we'll be paying tribute to that. That is a story I've never heard before about the Titanic. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So 222, I'm going to blow everybody's mind with the idea that I'm working on, but it, I'm not ready to announce that yet. Well, can we talk again? We can talk yes, again. All right. This is, that sounds great. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I want to be respectful of, of your time and your willingness to sit down and tell these amazing stories. But I have, a, I think, a great question that you can shed a lot of light on. You've been through a lot, and you have done such amazing things. What would you tell somebody right now that is making their way, that is trying to find that passion, that pursuit of things that they care about, right? It doesn't necessarily need to be in this. It could be in anything. What do you tell somebody that's, 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 you know? Starting their career? Yeah. Okay. I will tell them the smartest thing they can do is run around with the people that they want to be with. In other words, if you want to be a composer, which I had in my office the other day, and you want to compose a whole Titanic thing, I said, I can't help you. What you need to do is, where is that base so that you can do that? And he said, L.A. I said, you got to go to L.A. you got to be around those people. And I'll give you an example how I was able to do my career. I was in sales at CBS when I first started. Mm -hmm. And I really thought, why am I in sales? I really want to be in marketing. That's where my passion was. And I ran around with all the marketing guys. And I would go up there all the time and talk to them and everything. And then a job opened up. 
And I thought, well, the big boss doesn't know that I have any marketing background. He only knows me as a salesperson. So I think what I'll do is an ad campaign on myself. So I got a special case cereal box, and on the back, I did a campaign that was a crossword puzzle, and it said, why should you hire Kellogg? <laughs> and every morning, that you know amazing. the most important th person in a job is the assistant to the president. Right. And I knew her, and I said, every morning, I want to bring a, a, a placemat, a cereal bowl, and a special case cereal. And every day, it would change, and it would get added more, why you should hire Kellogg. And on the fifth day, I knew the president of the Los Angeles Times, and I had convinced him that he should run a paper off for me, and the ad, oh my God. The ad campaign was filled out now. It didn't ask the question. It said, hire Kellogg. And I went to his office, and I took the four papers, and I put that pa those four papers down. Now, in the prior four days, he always called me and said, this is really unique. And on the fifth day, he came down to my office. And he said, Mary, I can't believe this ad can be. Tell me you didn't really run a full page ad in the Los Angeles Times. And I said, no, but I can tell you I'm creative or I can show you I'm creative. And he says, you have the job. <sighs> now, when I got into marketing, I was there for, I don't know, three or four years. I don't know. I wanted to get into programming. So I kept running around with all the programming people because as a prom promo person, I had to talk to all the programming people. And finally... Um, I got a call one day from NBC, and NBC, Brandon Tartikoff was the president, and he said, why don't you come over here and head up marketing for us over here? And I thought, gosh, it's everything I want. But CBS was a Tiffany, NBC was still at the bottom at the time. Right. And so I thought, well, I don't want to go, I don't want to go, but I think I got to go. So I go to my boss and I said, you know, I got this job off from NBC, and it's everything I want, and I really want programming, but that's, he says, well, we're grooming you for that. And I said, well, you have till Friday to tell me whether I got that job or not. <laughs> On Friday, I had that job. He had moved the guy. I said to the guy that I took over his job, I said, well, you can thank me because you got this bigger job because I wanted your job. <laughs> so I got the job. <laughs> so anyway. So I would say my big note to everybody is don't, you, you got to run around with the people wherever you want to go. If you want to be in radio broadcast, mm -hmm. you, start at the bottom and work in that environment. It's, they don't come knocking on your door. Yeah, do you, you, you have to, you have to go and work. What did you say? You want to hang out? Like, yeah, you want to hang out? Yeah. yeah. No, <laughs> <laughs> I love you guys. But anyway, I, uh, I, I enjoy sharing, you know, the stumbles I've made and the excitement I have and, you know, it, it's a pleasure, you know. Well, Mary Kellogg, thank you so much for joining us um, on this podcast. I hear it is a story of a life well-lived and lived very intentionally. Yeah. It's purpose-driven. It is purpose-driven. And it is you putting yourself in the place where opportunities happen. That's you know? very well said. Yes, it's true. And I, I just, I, I, I love it. You've been so gracious with your time. And thank you very much for, thank you. for stopping by. It's been a tr pleasure. Thank you, Brad. Thank Absolutely. You, this has been Best Behavior Creative Club. Hey, thanks for listening uh, to Best Behavior Creative Club. I really appreciate it. And I hope you enjoyed what you just heard. Best Behavior Creative Club is a design sensory production and a DS original series hosted by me, Chris 
McAdoo. We're produced by Brad Carpenter and executive produced by Joseph Nother. Sound engineering by Hunter Foster and music by Matt Honkinen of Pitchwire. If you like what you heard, make sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, etc., etc. Please leave us a review or drop us a line at bestbehavior at designsensory.com. Hey, y'all. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing. Now, go make something great.